0: Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, uh, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician, basically anyone who loves movies, to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And uh, our guest today for our very first show, it's really a thrill to have this guy here, Uh, first came to prominence as an actor in such films as the uh, the Bill and Ted movies and The Lost Boys, and as we discussed on our Fun City Cinema podcast, Death Wish 3. Um, now he spends most of his time directing, and his feature credits include Freaked, Downloaded, Deep Web, Showbiz Kids, and Zappa. Uh, his new film is called The YouTube Effect. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Alex Winter. Hi, Alex. How are you? I am really well. All
1: right. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. No,
0: thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you know, when we were putting together the the sort of wish list for guests, you were right at the top of it because it's like we 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 know and love Alex from from Twitter. Uh, we love him from Bill and Ted and from from his films. But I know you are deep down a big time cinephile, and uh, and so I have to say I actually wasn't surprised by the year you selected to be your <laughs> year for discussion this year.
1: What year did you pick, Alex Winter, and why? I picked uh, 1931. um, All right, and uh, it was not easy, but it was (laughs) it was weirdly like should I go 1924? Should I go 1928? (laughs) Maybe 1932? (laughs) Um, and, uh, I landed on 31 because it really was a sweet spot of some of my favorite films and filmmakers. And also, um, because it, it's really, especially where it sits in the sort of the transition from silent to sound, um, and in other things that we'll get into, uh, it really speaks to the, the the beginning of modern cinema, which is kind of a weird thing to say because it's 1931. Um, but there's so many uh, advances um, that happen in, in the films that year that I think are really significant, but also the movies are great. They're, it's not just film history. They're great movies. So that was kind of the round robin reason why I went for this year. But uh, it's a tough thing to pick one year for movies.
0: Yeah. You know? It's well, not yeah. easy. Well, Tell us a little bit about your your cinema education, because like, you know, Mike and I are both in our mid 40s. So like I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we first knew you as an actor. But Mm -hmm. the more I've I've read about you and the more we've talked and even when we talked to you for the last podcast, you know, you think of this as being the sort of, you know, the actor who is on set and becomes fascinated by filmmaking and decides to be a director. But that wasn't your your path, was it?
1: No, not at all. Um, I was yeah. I was like a lot of, f- of filmmakers. I started, uh, I was a cinephile very, very young. Um, my parents were modern dancers and we moved from London to the States when I was really young, like five. And my mother taught dance at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, I really lived on that campus and I really lived in the movie theater. Um, where they showed films. I mean, that w- my babysitter wasn't a TV; it was a, a cinema that was playing Keaton and Chaplin and Fred Astaire and Hitchcock and wow. you know Todd Browning movies and art house movies. And I it was, you know, probably too young. To t- <laughs> you know, I had sure. that I had that mother who was dragging me to Altman movies at seven years old. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so, but they were also dancers. So, um, you know, Norman McLaren was a big part of our world and Brackage and, uh, my mom was wow. friends with John Cage and Merce Cunningham. And there was a lot of experimental music and film around our house. So, um, so I grew up in this very fertile environment, uh, for cinema and, and movies were really my refuge. It was, uh, I started acting as a kid, but I really... I really was very fixated on film history. Quite young, I would sort of digest a lot of film encyclopedias and things like that. Um, and my my walls in my bedroom were covered in in pictures of old movies. It, looking back on it, it seems kind of eccentric, actually. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it did, it, it I was. So I was the same fun. way. Yeah. 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 Well, that's the thing. You get older and you start finding all these kindred spirits. Um, yeah. I remember seeing day for night and there's all that great, those great shots of, of sort of young true sort of like hobbling down to like claw, uh, you know, a movie poster up from behind. And I just thought, Jesus, that is so me. That's great. There's other, <laughs> there's, there's other people in the world that are as bonkers as I am. Um, <laughs> So, you know, these were the things that really captured my imagination, um, at a very, very young, very young age. And, uh, and all through working on and off Broadway through my teens, I was saving money to go to film school. And so that was always my aim. Uh, and I went to NYU, I went to Tisch and then I came out of Tisch and that's when I acted, I was broke and needed a job and ended up, you know, very gratefully acting in a bunch of what became pretty big movies. And, um... But it was feeding my film habit then as well. So I do love to act. I love, you know, it's, it's always been kind of something I care about a lot. Um, but uh, sort of my education was was all in film. So like the,
0: you know, some of the films we're going to talk about today are not the kind of, you know, Chaplin, Keaton, even Browning, but but some really experimental stuff. Some really kind of daring material was the were these films that you were first exposed to in film school or you know was it more part of the sort of continuing to feed that appetite as you got older and these things you know became available to you it, it
1: was both um some of these i saw you know am i saw back in the st louis days um city lights uh chaplin was very important to me um uh, But I think the, the the films that I've chosen are films that have remained important to me. There are Chaplin films I probably, I think I probably loved The Kid more than anything else when I was young. And it's not actually one of my favorite Chaplin films anymore. And, and I love Metropolis and I prefer M to Metropolis now. Um, I did not see Lameet, I didn't see some of these films until well after film school. Uh, and I didn't really... Gain uh, the appreciation that I have now for Renoir, um, just the the absolute like top of the pantheon level appreciation um, that I have now for him as just a, a towering figure of of art and uh, storytelling um, until much later in life. Like I liked his movies when I was younger, but I didn't really sure. get get them in my opinion and in fact i didn't like rules of the game at all uh, for me, i just th- found it really trite and annoying for most of my film school era um i still actually don't love it to be totally honest with you i much prefer <laughs> Chen, which is what i chose here i think it's a much better right. takedown of the bourgeoisie than than rules of the game is but Um, but there are other, I mean, Renoir is, is absolutely one of my very, very favorites, but didn't really, I didn't really get till later. I kind of got to him after Jean Vigo, who I really did like when I was younger. Um, and it sort of led me to, to getting Renoir better.
0: All right. Well, we're going to talk about your top five. We're going to hit, hit through them one by one. But before we do, uh, my host Mike Hall is going to, uh, help us contextualize the world around the cinemas in 1931. So
2: let's do some headlines. (laughs) 1931 was like a super uh, a super heavy year, which is about as lightweight as a way to say that as I possibly can. Uh, and a lot of the films that are listed here and just a lot of the films that we remember from that year are international productions. Um, so, you know, it's appropriate. The The news, you know, the international news was really what was going on. You've got um, the end of World War One, which ended the Holy Roman and the Ottoman Empire. So you've got, you know, a sort of these things that had been structuring the world for hundreds and hundreds of years were gone now. There was all these sort of new countries and there was this real sort of end of history feeling like there was a possibility of sort of building a genuinely new world for the first time since, you know, the end of the Roman empire and the start of feudalism. I mean, it's a, it's when we talk about these things, it's like on that kind of a scale, it's not just a global scale. Philosophically it's enormous. And then, You've got the Great Depression, right? Herbert Hoover is president. FDR is on his way in. You know, the the line about FDR is that he gave America a little bit of socialism in order to avoid getting a lot of it, <laughs> um, which was what happened, for instance, in, you know, the, the Soviet Union, the Russian Revolution. You know, so you've got this sort of. And then, of course, Hitler is going to be chancellor of Germany very soon and is, is on his way up. Um, that is a result of not just the Great Depression, but also the Treaty of Versailles and sort of the way that impacted the the German economy. The French are still really like a big deal in a way that we can't conceive of now, um, not just sort of artistically, but militarily and, and you know. Um, so it's you know, there there really is this sort of a, fee- a massive feeling of change. And a lot of people reacted to that positively, especially a lot of artists looked back into history, you know, to sort of try to understand who we are and where we're going. There was a lot of sort of pathos, you know, and and and, and reading old sort of myth and reinterpreting those things. We see them, that in some of these films, trying to figure out how uh humans had dealt with change in the past. But there were also a lot of people that didn't like it. What they liked was fascism <laughs> and yeah. you know, like heavy hardcore Catholicism and trying to sort of keep all that um in reign. And and so obviously those conversations are being had by artists um, you know, first. And, and maybe not first, maybe they're right behind philosophers, but they're not far behind, you know, and sort of most effectively, and that's what we remember. Um the uh and then in the regular world uh outside of our brains max schmeling is the heavyweight champ the st louis cardinals won the world series 20 grand won the kentucky derby and there was not a world cup in 1931 so it was not as good of a year as it could
0: <laughs> thank you mike for the headlines and now uh let's talk through your top five Alex Winter, what is your your number five? Well, hang on. I should ask. Actually, is this a ranked list or is this a This is actually
1: it's kind of a it's sort of a thematic list. Though I I don't want to beautiful. I don't want to overstate the amount of thought I gave this, but I did give it some. Um, Gotcha. And uh, so it kind of flows in 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 a relatively specific order. It's also somewhat ranked in that M is number one, and M, if someone stuck a gun to my head, is probably in my top one or two favorite films of all time um uh and it probably it's up there with Mitsuguchi's work who was very influenced by Lang um and Murnau and everything that was going on in this period but man, coming off of what Michael was just saying, it's really interesting. You can't really not start with them. Um, right. Because talk about a movie that just sums up pretty much all of what you just went through. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from the philosophy to the specifics of kind of how the world was being carved up, to the nationalism, to the response to the growth of nationalism, to the some of the really hard kind of dualistic issues that people were facing within themselves. Like M to me is like, it's like notes from the underground. I mean, you you don't have M without Dostoevsky. You don't have M without Kafka. You don't have M also without, um, you know, the the hyper nationalism that was afflicting Germany at that time. It was written by, um, you know, Lang's former lover and wife, uh, Gabriel Harbu, who had written for Dreyer and written for Murnau. Um, and she was not, you know, there's a lot of talk when you read about Anne that it was Lang's big, you know, I think Ebert or something. They're not wrong. I don't, I'm not sort of faulting these people sort of went on about how this was Lang's distaste for Germany. I mean, Harvey was a hyper-nationalist. She wrote, she was a mm-hmm. a, a member of the National Socialist Party, and she went on to write full-on Nazi sympathetic movies for years. Um, and this was her script. And... Uh, uh, as she, you know, she wrote Metropolis as well, but, you know, this is a, it's a film that's really complicated. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not just a really cut and dried critique of, of the growth of of fascism in Germany. It, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, I think it has more in common with Dostoevsky or like uh, uh, Gorky, like the lower depths it reminds me of. Um, it's really uh, an examination of sort of the, of an underclass and how it ends up banding together in the midst of a crisis the criminal the the murderer and the criminal underworld and the victims uh is really really compelling in that way and i think it, i think what i love about it is that it isn't black and white it isn't cut and right. dra- it isn't cut and dried at all it's incredibly nuanced and keeps flipping what you think is going to be its its theme up like around and around and upside down and very destabilizing in that way um it's really damn good, man. I went back and looked at it again for this, and I was like, <laughs> Jesus, this movie is just so darn good in so many ways. Yeah, and that Peter
0: Lorre performance is just is is so simulta- like The things he's doing in terms of the complexity and the nuance of that work of a character that is so chilling, but also so sympathetic, but also representative and also a metaphor, you know, like to, to work, to have a performance that works on as many levels as that one does is
1: really sort of astonishing. It it truly is. And it's a, a, a the thing I love about the, the cinema at this time um, often intentionally was, was hyper theatrical. Um, you know, and this was, I think this was Lang's first sound movie. There's a lot of sound innovation in it, but it's not, yeah, it, it's a very it's a very quiet movie. There's not a lot of dialogue in it. Um, it's it's heavy on atmosphere and its use of sound. There's the famous leitmotif motif of him singing. You know the the whistling the P- pure gimp theme. Ooh. You know, like you don't you got no jaws without M, right? Um, you just I'm sorry, but <laughs> yeah. you just don't. And uh, this whole idea of of playing with silence when everyone else was was looking to to um, exploit sound and in a talky, very talky way. um, it, And Laurie's performance is very theatrical and uh, it's almost like kabuki or, or, or like no theater or something. It's so it's almost abstract, um, but it's yeah. very, very powerful.
2: Yeah. Every time I watch it and it sort of starts, you know, in the beginning with the kids singing the song about the man coming to get you. Like every time I, every time I put it on, I'm just sort of like, in a way, I kind of feel like all every movie should start with some kids <laughs> singing a chorus about it. I don't know, I don't know. There's just something about it that is just really, really,
1: really dangerous, incredibly and so, sort of threatening. Yeah, the first five minutes of that film it, are absolutely jaw dropping. They're so well cut and shot. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's a master class, You know, it really yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, no, the, why are these kids like scaring the hell out of me? Right <laughs> I can't get over that. Well, I want
0: to I, I, wanna get back to that idea of sound without much dialogue, because that I think is a wonderful recurring theme in this list, mm-hmm. you know, that we are in a transition year where, where so many of the unmemorable movies are the ones that were just pointing a camera at like a stage play and just recording talk. And there were still a handful of filmmakers, most of them in this list, international ones, who were like, no, we're not done with silent movies yet. We're not afraid of silent movie imagery and technique just yet. But we'll get back to that because the the next film on your list is one with a fair amount of dialogue, although done uh, quite well, I think.
1: Yeah, Le Chien is is Renoir, um, and uh, it is he made two films that year with uh, Michelle Simon. This is the, the the larger. The first is Purge uh, Baby, uh, which is translates as the baby's laxative, um, which is a fado <laughs> a fado farce that he made uh, with with Simon, and it's it's good. Um, uh, the uh this movie is just unbelievably great though. Yeah. And and um it's you know all through film school, uh my favorite filmmaker was Bunuel, and uh and I just ate up everything Bunuel did. And I remember getting to La Chienne at some point and going, Oh shit, Bunuel just ripped all of his his entire latter latter <laughs> <ladder> period <laughs> career off of Renoir. But uh, but it's it's this is really like the gold standard in bourgeois. Take down yeah. cinema, um, yeah. and it's so well. It is. There are certain movies, and they talk about Renoir this way. There's other filmmakers that get spoken about this way. Um, that, where I think it is really valid. There are certain filmmakers that you, it is just like watching a miracle. I remember that something Kurosawa said about Satyajit Ray that it was just like watching his films like watching the sun or something like that. Mm. And and you watch this movie, you're like, how the hell does he do this? Like the the his. His process with the actors, the process with the way he writes the screenplays, the way he sort of writes them based on who the actors are, and it's mm-hmm. it's miraculous. I mean, there are people like Linklater who I think do that incredibly well. I mean, there's people have done it all through film history, um, very well. Uh, Bresson uh, comes to mind, obviously, but but this is so light. It like it's deceptive. It feels like a little fluffy pastry, but it's really acidic as hell, and it's like poison. And yeah. And not unlike M, there's aspects of notes from the underground. There's aspects of of other writing of that time in terms of the underdog that that Simone plays and looking at art and and just so I've said it, uh, Fritz Lang remade La Chienne as a straight up bare knuckle noir with Edward G. Robinson in his Hollywood days, his uh, Scarlet Street, um, and. Uh, so there, you know. So you look at Le Chien and you think, oh, this is this light, fluffy sort of, you know, co- comedy of manners, and it's really not. It's a really ballsy, brutal satire, and and pretty much of a noir in terms of where it goes. Yeah. P- Pre noir. One of the
0: things, one of the things that I thought that I think is really miraculous about it, I always think it's fascinating when you're watching an early sound film. Where they're dealing with the constraints of this, you know, of, of this technology, this bulky sort of immovable technology and having to forget kind of everything they learned about moving a camera during the silent era. Yeah. And yet you see there, there are certain filmmakers who were just not going to let that shit go. Yeah. Um, and you see that a couple of times in this movie, especially the, the scene um where the the dancing scene that that like mm-hmm. wheezy handheld camera during yeah. that that intense and really nasty dancing scene you know the the kind of sharp focus is not possible they they you know they're having to deal with the fact that the fam- that the camera's just going to go out of focus but yeah. the, the the emotional intensity is so present that like he clearly decided that 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 was worth it you know that it was okay if it wasn't technically perfect cuz it's so emotionally true
1: it's a re- that's a really good scene. Um, and a really good point about that scene. Cause I did I didn't quite think of it in that way, but 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 what it, what did strike me when I went back to look at it again was how modern this film is. And oh yeah. We, we were talking about this earlier, but so much of 70s cinema was about discomfort. You know, Altman, Cassavetes, mm-hmm. Cassavetes. I mean, even what Scorsese did with King of Comedy, which has some of the most like excruciatingly uncomfortable scenes in cinema. And heavily influenced, and obviously what had come out of the the French New Wave before that, and and the German, and what Herzog and German, Express Fassbinder was doing that really well as well. Obviously, um, even his super early work was very, very excruciating. But this is so early to be playing with things in that way, and it's and it's exactly why I prefer this film to Rules of the Game because I feel like there there are scenes in this film, like the one you just mentioned, that are just existentially discomforting. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean yeah. they are—they are just—they are, just, are so modern in their discomfort. And I know literature at that time was doing that, and even earlier than 1931. But you really did not see that in cinema. And the shit that Michelle Simone gets put through in this film, and and, yeah. and, and uh-huh. you know, and the sort of what it, and how you identify with them, and how elegantly that's conveyed, um, it's very very modern and and really heavily influences so much of, of what's to come. Yeah. Well,
0: speaking of filmmakers who did not want to let go of the silent cinema, um, Alex, <laughs> what is the third film on your top
1: five? Yeah, I have a, I have a couple of silence in a row for that reason, and and, <laughs> and, and City Lights is is Chaplin's uh, great fuck you to the sound <laughs> era. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody wanted him to make a sound film. Um, uh, he started developing it when sound was huge. Uh, he was very firm in his desire to make it a silent. Uh, it's a very autobiographical film. His, his, you know, beloved mother had just died, and he was completely destabilized. And there's a. Yeah. So it reminds me a lot of Dickens. A lot of a lot of Chaffin reminds me of Dickens. But the the. This is kind of like his Oliver twist in a way. It's sort of like looking, yeah. it's a dreamlike, I mean, again, talk about a modern film made in a pre-modern era. It is very, very dreamlike. And you can see why it influences Wells, it influences Kubrick, it influences Brisson, it influences Tarkovsky. It, this film has such a broad influence because it is it is really formally very daring. Like they basically, create mm. they created a city, like the set's, and the design of, of the city, it's not any city that exists. It's like an amalgam of different right. c- cities around the world, but largely Chaplin's sort of memories of childhood. Um, and so he's created this massive scale dream city and and then inhabits it with a very small group of characters. And it's just an unrelentingly cinematic movie. I mean, it's it's uh yeah. it's really it's giant and it's small, it's macro and micro in both of those ways. And and Um, So it's by far my favorite Chaplin now. It it wasn't for a really long time. It was another, another one of those movies I didn't get that deeply until I was a little older.
0: Well, and I think, especially with this one, you know, it's, it is so tempting, you know, when you're sort of like, a, you know, a film snob in your 20s to, to, uh, to dismiss Chaplin because of the sentimentality, to, you know, prefer Keaton or even Lloyd because, you know, it's a more modern approach. But as you get older and more sentimental and turn into more of a sap, like, if you <laughs> can watch the last scene of City Lights and not just completely fall apart... I don't know what you've got inside you, but it's not a heart like that sequence is just, it doesn't matter how many times I see it, Alex, like it will destroy me every single time.
1: I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a child and his lost mother. It's lost. It's there's uh, so many metaphors going on in there, but he doesn't play them as metaphor because he's a genius. So, you right. know, and yes, I grew up much preferring Keaton and I still love Keaton. Um, oh, of very, very, very much. But uh but there's something timeless about masterful storytelling and uh th- that's what won me over about city lights as I was, as I was getting older was just the storytelling is so elegant and uh, and it's really like a great piece of music everything is here I mean it's funny it's sad it's dramatic it's scary it's like it, it works on all these levels and then there's just genius routines you know him and the the, the millionaire who only yes. knows them when he's drunk is just yes. that's like that's like something out of Seinfeld like you could see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could see like, like Norman Lear coming up with that gag, right? Like, right. I got a great idea, you know, and it is a great yeah. idea, but Chaplin just kills it. And uh, yeah. so it's just a very, I mean, it's a, it, it's, it cannot be discounted how influential this film is on every significant level, but it's also um, a great movie on its own. And I do love, you know, I was only half kidding when I said it was an FU because, you know, Chaplin was really powerful when he made it in and. and uh, he was very determined to make the film his way, and he ended up taking yeah. an enormous amount of the, of the gross of this film by saying to you know the powers that be, "Look, I didn't make one of these gimmicky talkies. You know, this movie's standing completely on its own merit. So you got to give me more money." And they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and one last thing I want to say about about this film that I think is worth mentioning because you know we get so rightfully um in awe of him as a filmmaker and as a a sort of comic mind that it's easy to actually underrate him i think as an actor Mm -hmm. but that last close-up in that last scene like his coverage of himself in that scene is just incredible the things he's doing just with his eyes is it's immaculate screen acting
1: yeah, I agree. And it's sort of like something was kind of my point about La Um, and I think it and certainly we we're talking about it with Laurie, like there's a people always talk about acting um and film acting, especially as oh, back in the old days, uh everybody right. everybody was working from the outside in. And before before the group theater and method, there was no truth in cinema. You know, it was all yeah. it was all Olivier with a hump and Chaplin with a mustache and as uh, just such bullshit. And it's such, a, it's such a misunderstanding of the artifice that is in all art. Um, and there's artifice in Cassavetes and there's artifice in Chaplin, but there's so much truth in these performances, in, in all of these films that are very uh, vulnerable and, and subtle and nuanced and human. And uh, all the performances in La Shen are amazing. All the performances in, in this film are, are really amazing as well. All right. Well, let's keep the silent, uh, vibe going then. Mm-hmm. With a, uh, what's your, what's your number four? Pick? Um, I, I chose a, uh, a Brazilian film uh, called *Lamite* uh, by a, a poet, uh, Mario Pesotto, who only made this film, um, and then yeah. was very prolific, uh, with poetry and, and other, uh, literature, um, and even other screenplays that didn't get made. And, uh, he made this. It's an avant-garde silent film. Uh, it was made when he was very young. He was in his early 20s. Um, and is abstract. Um, it's, you know, a couple of years after Shenandoah and a year before Blood of a Poet. Uh, but it's not a surrealist movie, which is interesting. Right. It's not, it's not right. like, it's not a Dada dreamscape thing. It's, um, it's a very rigorous uh, avant-garde movie, but it's not you know, doing your homeworks, not eating your vegetables. It's really, <laughs> really beautiful. And for all of his, you know, philosophical distaste for the Surrealists, there is a lot of very dreamlike aspects to it. Um, but it's a really beautiful film and I've always found it very resonant. Um, and I find it is, it works as kind of a key to some of what came after him. Uh, you know, people like Wells and other, other folks, Eisenstein were, were fans of this film Um But it's just a very beautiful, singular little piece of art that just shows you how modern cinema was at that time. When you always think of the sort of avant-garde as Bunuel or, or, or Cocteau or some of the other folks, Man Ray, who were working around this time.
0: Yeah, I had this is one of the two in your top five that I had never seen before. And so, you know, that's to be honest part of the fun and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was just like for the selfish little pleasure of getting good <laughs> film recommendations yeah. from people I respect but uh and having an excuse to watch films that have been on my shelf like this is on my shelf I've got the Scorsese World Cinema Project set and I just hadn't broken it out yet and I did it's breathtaking like it's the 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 imagery is it's it's just like it's it's frame after frame that's just sort of gobsmacking yeah um And I I guess I'm I'm curious, you know, because we'll see this in our next one, too. And like we mentioned, this is a very international list. Mm -hmm. Do you think in in your sort of studies of this era were were international filmmakers just less interested in doing what so many American filmmakers did of just sort of abandoning imagery for the novelty of sound?
1: I think that that. And I could be wrong. This is not coming from scholarship. This is coming from a a guess, but observation. Yeah, observation. Yeah, it seems that the 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 commercial hub of the American industry was more dictatorial in demanding that that talkies be Um, talky, and I think that's why Chaplin, who is sort of I guess out of everything on this list, the most kind of you know, um, I mean, he's English, but has the most sort of Western mainstream quality was saying, no, we're not there yet. Like I'm not ready to abandon. We we haven't done all we can do with this yet. Um, and I don't want to just turn it into theater. Um, and a lot of the American films, including, you know, the front page came out this year, street scene came out this year. Um, a lot of those films are based on plays. Um, and they and you know god love them they're, they're good movies but they'd probably be better on stage i you right. know? and uh and they've got quick patter dialogue and they're wall to wall talking and they have abandoned i think too quickly um the exploration the sort of cinematic exploration um and that's why i w- i was a big orson welles fan when i was young because welles was kind of like well screw that i'm going to lean <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to lean on atmosphere and yeah um, and he was taking a real page from what was going on in Europe and with theater and with film in Europe. So, and that's just more my sensibility. I mean, I like movies that are, feel like movies and not like something I could just as easily see on stage or, you know, read a book. Um, yeah. and these, these filmmakers were really pushing, uh, the, 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 in the, I think what they felt was the last squeezing, the last bit of juice they could out of this kind of cinema before it was unfinanceable. I mean, look at what happened to Lang. I mean, Lang right. moved over to the states and you know, made sort of like hard knuckle noirs for the most part. And some of them are good, but they're not like M or Metropolis.
2: I'm editing a project right now that is uh, essentially a silent film. I mean, there's things happening with the audio, but sort of the way the audio and video are being combined it's essentially a silent film. And so this is the first I'd never seen Mead either. This is the first time I and it sent me down a silent rabbit hole because I'm already sort of working on this project, and just the way it's edited, you know, the editing is so different. Yeah, you know, and last like I was enjoying your list. A couple of them I had seen, but the just the whole mindset and conception around the editing and the shooting also. But it's just there's more. You spend more time with things, you know. You you have a little more sort of time to like consume the images. A little bit more sort of time and 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 room to figure out why they're juxtaposed in the way that they are, um, without sort of it being like, you know, see dog, say dog. Yeah, right? or or the opposite. Um, right,
1: because I, I agree with you completely. And I think that's where his his sort of vocal distaste for the Dada movement is really important, is that you know, it it isn't just, you know, uh the kind of more standard American form of cutting, but it's also not this the the Boonwell Dolly or Cocteau form either, which is let's sort of let's mix it up and create random images that sort of shock the brain.
2: Make a pile yeah. and let people pull whatever they want. Yeah, out I of mean he's, and it's all about your mother right. and, and what dreams you have. Exactly he's night. like, you
1: he's know. like, no, he says I am I am the creator of this of this poetic cinema and I'm going to dictate how this lays out in a very specific way. And I, it works here. It's very beautiful in that way. Yeah. Well, that,
0: that sort of conversation about editing and, and, uh, and sound and image together is a, takes us very smoothly into the last film on your list, Alex. What is, uh, tell
1: us about that one. Great. And, uh, and that is true. That is why in my little harebrained attempt to give this some form, (laughs) this is why uh, uh, we're ending with enthusiasm film I love. It's a Vertov documentary. Uh, it is after and is much lesser known than man with the camera. In fact, I've only been able to find this on YouTube, but it's there in its entirety on YouTube. Um, and it doesn't like intercut with like you know Ryan's toys or some kind of weird influencer. You can <laughs> actually watch the whole film uh, uninterrupted. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's it's an extraordinary film. It's much maligned actually in critical circles. Even Vertov had kind of written it off. Um, I find this film staggeringly beautiful, and it is a. Uh, a sound documentary that uh, uses sound like and this is what is so great about it it was actually really influential for in a very subtle way uh, for what we were playing with with Zappa uh, when we did it which was trying to take sound and and use it as uh, uh, as a kind of score, as opposed mm. to, to things just being represent, representational for what they are. And it's very revolutionary in that way. Like he's really doing I think of it the way the futurists were painting, you know, 10, 20 years before this, this is like a, a futurist examination of of uh, you know unfortunately of a Stalin exercise in Donbass Ukraine right um, the the politics of it are are are, are somewhat uh, dismaying um but as we, problematic. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think yes, he would Veritov would be this film would be canceled if it were released today. <laughs> um, but uh but it is staggeringly beautiful and it sounds beautiful, and uh it's it's extremely uh well crafted.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, it, it this this one again was new to me as well, and but of course I'd seen Man with the Movie Camera, the way he uses sound. Um, not to compliment, but sometimes even to sort of, uh, jarringly, uh, fight the image. Is I think what's what's extraordinary and is something that you don't see in a lot of a lot of films then or now. This idea that they don't have to be necessarily in in smooth communication with each other, but could in fact it can in fact be a bit of a battle and see who wins
1: almost. I mean, I'm really inspired by that in terms of documentary filmmaking, and that can be that can that approach can be. Can influence your narrative. Uh, it's sort of like I was saying about uh, about M and how it's often represented as an anti German, anti Nazi film, though it was made essentially, essentially by written by a Nazi. Um, uh, it, it, you know, you can create a kind of a, a self uh, conflicting machine that destabilizes the audience in a way, and you can do that with theme, or you can do that in, in Vertov's case, literally with audio um, in conjunction with imagery and. I find that very inspiring because it works. Like he's got a theory, he's got, there's method to the madness. He's not just throwing shit at the screen. Um, Right. And he took it very seriously and he's also a brilliant artist. So he did it in a very effective way. Great.
0: Well, as you mentioned, yeah, that one uh, we always try to try to give people a heads up. Uh, you can watch that one in its entirety on YouTube, and pretty good, print, I thought what
1: I yeah, heard. it's it's fine. Yeah, it's
0: totally watchable. Yeah, yeah. And as of as of my last the last time I checked, the other four were all streaming on the Criterion Channel. They are um, it,
1: yeah, and some of them are restored. Uh, the Lachene, yeah. I think, is the restored, and the Lachene also has the hour long Jacques Rivette. A interview with renoir and simone from the sixties which is a gold mine where they talk right. about their career together and the making of of the film. Yeah. Great.
0: Yep. And all of those also available on Criterion Blu-rays as well. Right. All right, Alex, that's a hell hell of hell of a top five. Um, <laughs> let's see uh you might be surprised to learn that all of these were not tremendous uh commercial successes or Oscar winners the story of my life uh,
2: dude, right this, there <laughs> this award list is so fucking boring after that after what he just ran down oh my god <laughs> but uh yep.
0: Mike is gonna walk us through uh, 1932's Oscar winning films and also uh some of the uh the the domestic uh top 10 for for 1931 as well Mike
2: sell out. With me oh yeah sell out with me tonight The Oscar winners are a mess uh, this early in their history for our purposes. Jason, do you want to explain this a little bit? I feel like you like why was it like this? At the beginning they
0: weren't going by the calendar year, which is very inconvenient for us. Um now now <laughs> they do, you know, and Thanks, they changed academy. They, they changed that fairly early, but at this point they were basically it was it wasn't the calendar year, it was more like the sort of school year. Um, so the fourth Academy Awards were given to films that were released between, it's like August of 1930 and uh, the end of July of 31. And then the fifth Academy Awards were for films released between, like uh, on August 1st, 31 through July 31st, 32. So we went through and checked oh, out the I, ones that, that like were honored. Like the Electoral College in,
1: of the Oscars.
0: It's a mess. Yeah. So, but we went through and found the, the 1931 films that were honored <laughs> in both of those in both of those ceremonies in the major categories:
2: Best Picture, *Cimarron* by RKO; Best Director, Norman Taurog for *Skippy*. Did I say his name right? Yeah, I, he's dead. It doesn't matter. Best Actor, Lionel Barrymore. We got an early uh, early statue for the Barrymores for *A Free Soul*. And uh, Marie Dressler won Best Actress for *Men and Bill*. I got to admit, I've never seen *Men and Bill*.
0: Alex thoughts on any of those films if if you've seen them? <laughs> I got
1: nothing on those. Sorry.
0: Nothing like, on n- those. Not I, mean, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing that I have found, especially with these early ones, is you go through the movies that were actually, that were awarded at the time, either with money or awards, and rarely they're ones that have actually persevered, which makes me sort of feel good about some of the recent Oscars and, and, and hits. Uh, Mike, what, what won the awards at the Fifth Academy Awards?
2: Best Actor was Wallace Beery for The Champ and Frederick March. Somehow, for Doctor Jekyll and now Mr. Hyde. Yep, that was
1: Best. That was a tie that year. A- Alex, you've uh, I've seen these films. Have you seen? I these? have very much so. I love and I love Wallace Beard and I love 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 Frederick March. Love him. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that that Jekyll and Hyde performance. I mean, like so good. for a while there, that was just like how you got an Oscar was by doing yeah. Jekyll and Hyde because this was like <laughs> ten
2: years before Spencer Tracy did it and and crushed it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Best actress was Helen Hayes for the sin of Madeleine Claudette, and best director is Frank Borzage for Bad Girl, which is not nearly as much of an exploitation
1: film as it should be <laughs> or yeah. sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And Helen Hayes was an Aerosmith that year, the Ford movie as well, which is one I have. Yes. Seen.
0: Oh well. Well, here, here you go. You'll be, you'll be happy to hear about that one at least. Mike, uh, wh- what did the, uh, what did the domestic box office look like that year?
2: Number one was City Lights with two million, so Yay! a crossover between uh, a genuinely good movie <laughs> and uh, commercial success and our podcast. Number yeah. two is Trader Horn with one point six four million. It's an adventure movie by W. S. Van Dyke three years before The Thin Man. Uh, number three was Palmy Days with 1.6 million, a musical comedy starring Eddie Cantor. How much did it cost to see a movie at this point? Like a penny and <laughs> like, a half? Like a nickel or something, yeah. I feel like 1.6 million is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, number four was The Man Who Came Back with 1.4 million, raul Walsh drama starring Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell. Uh, number five was a tie between Merely Marianne with 1.3 million, a Henry King comedy drama starring the aforementioned Ms. Gainer and Charles Farrell again. Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde made uh, 1.3 million. Frederick March, previously mentioned, uh, directed by Ruben Mamoulian, Yeah, which is he my was my new hotel sign-in name.
0: Ruben Mamoulian. Mike, you remember we watched that movie? Applause for Fun City Cinema. Like this was another guy. Yeah, who, like uh, like Renoir, who was who was really trying to still like move the camera and do interesting stuff even when even when the technology wasn't quite ready to yet
1: yeah
2: man and well this is a question like do you think the fact that we have better technology for it now when you see those shots does it make you feel like oh like that's a fucking mess because they didn't have a steady cam. Because to me, it makes me feel like the ball's on these yeah. guys to try anyway. Yes. How close they got. Yes. Like, I'm actually really, the fact that we can see it now properly. I, when I see those old shots, I reinterpret them with a steady and give them all the props yes. that they deserve. If <laughs> I, they had that I love feeling
1: the camera moving. Like you, It happens in Hitchcock yes. all the time. It happens in Sunset Boulevard. It's, it's always very satisfying, I feel like, you when yep. you really feel yep. the whole machinery behind the shot grinding its way from one shot to another or yeah. one focal yeah. length to another. It's very satisfying. Yeah.
0: No, I, I love the fact that in Rope, like, you actually can see the, the stitches,
2: but you're like, you're like, good for you for trying, Alfred Hitchcock. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Number six is, uh, was mentioned, Aerosmith, with $1.25 million, John Ford directing Ronald Coleman.
0: Alex, I knew this was one you, you uh, wanted to, to touch on briefly as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, these are, these are all pre-code movies, obviously. Um, It's not my favorite Ford, but I think all Ford is really important. Um, And uh, I think that, uh, you know, you can see in terms of what I was saying before about handling talky stories, Ford is such Mm -hmm. a master uh, visually that he somehow makes this visually interesting, even though it is a, a lot of yakking. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that was what I have to offer there. <laughs>
2: Putting some miles on those microphones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number seven, the Connecticut Yankee, 1.2 million. It's a, it is an adaptation of the Mark Twain book starring Will Rogers. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that, but I'm really tempted just by that one little stat there. Has has anybody got a a review of that one for me? I don't.
0: I haven't seen
2: that. I have. Yeah. I have not seen
0: as much Will Rogers
2: as I w- as I would like to, just because I'm fascinated by him. Yeah. Uh, number eight was Cimarron with 1.12 million. It's a western epic directed by Wesley Ruggles. Uh, won the big award. Number nine was Bad Girl. There was some real crossover here. 1.1 mm-hmm. million. Uh, Pre code drama directed by Frank Borzage. Uh, and number 10 was possessed with 1.031 million, a number so specific, I assume it's connected to a tax dodge and is an actual literal <laughs> uh, a pre-code drama starring Joan Crawford and Clark Gable. Which is a good looking. So like a yeah. pretty steamy movie as I, rec- I, it's been a while, but I recall that as pretty as, as it lives up to what you want from yes, it's, Crawford it is, and Clark Gable. Yes, it's
0: very much a pre-code drama. Um, all right. So there's, so yeah, that's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a, a, a couple of movies that, that, that made it, uh, made it through the decades on that top 10 and, and several that we have forgotten about. Um, all right. So now Alex, if you're ready, we're going to do a little lightning round. Yep. Um, a few more of, of the 1931 releases of note, uh, which you may or may not have seen and you can just pass if you haven't, but if you've seen it, tell us a little, little something thought or two, if you'd like. Uh, we're going to put 10 minutes on the clock and here we go. Uh, street scene by King Vidor.
2: Yeah, this is,
1: I actually really do like this round of applause, yeah. round of applause for King Vidor. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right. I'm done. <laughs> I, I do like this movie. This is, I had a yeah. list of like five additional films from this year that I, that I do enjoy. That is one of them. Um, it is written, uh, it is taken from a play. Um, and it is, very theatrical, there was a lot of talking, Um, but it's very, very well acted, very well written, and it's all, the set is really cool. Um, And it's sort of uh, the beginning of, of creating movie sets out of kind of a theater world. West Side Story did it very famously much later, um, to create a, a milieu that, that's somewhat realistic and somewhat not realistic. That's what I liked about it. Uh, so I like Street Scene. The, the New York
0: backlot uh, on, the, on the set that we talked a lot about in, on the other pod. Um, also, a big year, the kickoff of Universal Horror, 1931, uh, started early in the year with Todd Browning's Dracula.
1: This is maybe the first movie I ever loved. Browning was really was like my first infatuation as a kid. Uh, that and Freaks um, and other films of his. Uh, uh, but Dracula is a, is a really beautiful film. It's extremely well shot. Uh, I'm a huge Todd Browning fan. And uh, I do think Lugosi is a little, I hate to say it, sounds really mean. He's a little stiff. Um, I was a big Lon Chaney person and the film was, he kicked Uh-oh. the bucket before he was able to do this and he was supposed to do this. Um, And I probably would have preferred it with Lon Chaney, but it is, but I love what Browning does and the other performers are are really great. It's a a really good movie, I think.
0: Thoughts on the the Spanish version directed by George Melford, which has become a bit of an item of its own.
1: I I don't think I've seen that in a really long time. Um, I don't have anything to offer there. Other than I really love Blackula. If we're going to go down that road. yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So also out at the uh, later on in that year, the continuation of universal horror in 1931, uh, James Wells, Frankenstein.
1: Again, a huge, huge fan. I didn't love him as, as much as Browning coming up, but I, I love this movie. Um, And I started, like, painting – I started getting latex and actually turning myself into things with latex when I was very young. Wow. Based on my love of Boris Karloff and the Hammer films and Cushing and all of that jazz. Um, And, uh, I I mean, I love James Whale. And I also – again, I hope this doesn't sound really uh, horribly problematic, but I think that – you know, being openly gay at that time, uh, and making these types of films about these almost blown up movies about outsiders and, you know, being literally pitchfork showing up and trying to, there's, there's so many obvious metaphors in this for me, um, with what was going on in, in the gay community at that time, obviously done in a very operatic way. Uh, yep. but it's a, it's a really great movie and, um, it's really beautifully directed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Also that you saw the kickoff of uh, the Warner Brothers uh, gangster movie cycle uh, with Little Caesar.
1: Yeah. I mean, this was on my list. This is really, I almost put this on my top five. I am a huge, wow. huge fan of this film. Um, it is, you, you, you have nothing that came from it. And they, people talk about, you know, noir starting um, post-World War II, um, which you just go and watch Little Caesar and it'll, can, you can debunk that pretty quickly. Um, but it's, it's just a very bare knuckle movie. It's, it's a shockingly intense film for its time. And, uh, and everyone in it is, is ferociously good. Just ferocious. And I like Marvin Leroy. I like Gypsy too. Um, yeah. So um, it's a very entertaining film as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then out that very same year in the gangster cycle, we had The Public Enemy, another sort of iconic gangster movie.
1: Yeah, with Cagney and and I love it. I, I um I, I love James Cagney and I I prefer uh, I prefer um, Little Caesar to Public Enemy personally. I just it's just a great is a perfect little mean little Swiss watch of a, <laughs> of a gangster movie. Yeah. Pack, pack's <laughs> a little bit more of a punch, but still Yeah. Still it's not so operatic. Good.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and I've never seen this one, but also that same year we had the only Cagney Robinson collaboration, which was a film called Smart Money. Have you seen this one?
1: I haven't seen Smart Money. Yeah, I, got, yeah, I, I can't either. offer anything
0: on that. Yeah. The Front Page, as you mentioned, also came out that year.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, very theatrical, great, obviously, firecracker dialogue. I wouldn't really, again, I don't mean to you know, rain on anyone's parade. I don't really think it, it's more of a play than a movie, but it's, yep. you know, it's good.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mo- His Girl Friday is just so great. Yeah. So I much better. It's, yeah. It's so much better. So it's yeah. so easy to just underestimate the front page. Yeah. Uh, also, also out that year we had uh, Indiscreet directed by Leo
1: McCary directing Gloria Swanson. I like it. I f- forgot that was 1931. I like that movie. I love her. Um, I like him. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I like that movie.
0: Uh, also out that year from uh, from Germany, a film that I saw for the first time a couple of years ago that kind of knocked my socks off, Madchen in Uniform, directed by Karl Freulich. Have not um, seen it. An amazing, um, very pre-code uh, girl school story with some heavy uh, sapphic overtones.
1: Love it. Um, Go, going on the list.
0: <laughs> also out in 1931, the Marx Brothers in Monkey Business. Alex, where do you land on this one?
1: I mean, again, that almost made my my top five, but it's just unfair because it's just nowhere near their best movie. Um, but I'm, I'm just a Titanic fan of theirs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's such great stuff. It was, it, it's, it's, again, it, it's one of their, those movies that feels almost more like a vaudeville review than a perfectly made film, which they figured out um how to do better than that. But uh it's great. I enjoy it. I, I mean, I really love all their films so much.
0: I do too. I love this one so much because it's one of the few where they're all together, all from the beginning. Yeah. Um And Groucho's stuff with Thelma Todd is just so I, great. I, I love Thelma Todd so much and their scenes together are just like electric. There's such a great, funny, but also sexy chemistry between them. Yeah, I agree. It's great. Um, also that in uh, 1931, Rub- the aforementioned Ruben
1: Mamoulian directed City Streets that year. I, think I like him and I've seen his work. I can't remember this one, so I can't comment on it. I, I, I gotcha. feel like I've seen it, but I, it's, not, it's not ringing any big bells for me
0: this year saw the release of the original 1931, the Maltese Falcon with Ricardo Cortez, BB Daniels and the aforementioned Thelma Todd, uh, which I think is kind of a fascinating movie just in terms of the pre-code version of that story.
1: Yeah. I've always wanted to see this cause I love the, you know, the famous one so much. Um, but, uh, I haven't ever seen it. Um, and I love the, you know, I love the author. So, so all...
0: yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, a really interesting D.W. Griffith movie out in 1931 called *The Struggle*. Um, not one of his best-loved films, but really fascinating because it was shot in on the streets in the Bronx. Because uh, th- and it was one of the first sort of sound films that was shot on location in New York. So that that's one that I sort of have a, a soft spot for. It's an interesting film. And then uh, two by uh, two by G.W. Pabst, we had. Camrad uh, Shaft and the Three Penny Opera both came out in 1931.
1: Yep, I've seen the Three pen- His Three Penny Opera. I haven't seen the other one. Um, how is How is Three Penny Opera? Because that's what okay. I've always meant to see. Yeah, it's okay. It's not. Um. Um. I. It, it, I don't. Again, I don't want to speak out of school. If I remember correctly, it was the. It was very contentious between Brecht and he, and I think Brecht mm. dis- disowned it. If I'm not incorrect, um, there's so many uh, attempts at that at that story, obviously. Um, and Brecht was not an easy person to work with. Um, so shocking! I, shocking! Yeah, uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not poised to tell the story properly, but that's my vague <laughs> recollection of of what happened there. I think they changed endings. I think they made it, you know, they smoothed edges. It was. I think it's one yeah. of those things. Wouldn't it be fun? Brecht turns
0: out is an alienating figure. <laughs>
1: Who would thunk it? Yeah.
0: Sorry. All right. Well, that is our lightning round. You did very well, Alex Winter. Your your uh, your classic film knowledge is uh, is impressive. Uh, and uh, and we thank you so much for coming on and doing this with us and talking about old movies late on a Monday night. uh Before <laughs> we go, is there is there anything you would like to uh, to plug promote? push uh of yourself or or of anyone else uh about it
1: i don't think so i think uh you know we we just we just finished showing our youtube movie at tribeca went great we're gonna do some more festivals and then roll out later this year but it's, it's really not gonna be out for a bit so it uh, gives me time to can, hang out with the kids and watch movies, which is what this gave me a, a good excuse to do. So hey,
0: that's awesome. Can you just real quick? Can you because you mentioned this film vaguely when we spoke for the for the Fun City podcast? What is the YouTube effect about? I mean, aside from, you know, the obvious what's in the title?
1: It's a documentary that looks at the uh, specifically at Google and YouTube uh, and their influence and the implications of their power and their sort of monopolized power on the planet. Um, It's not all negative by any means. We're sort of it's a kind of all encompassing examination, but it's critical. Uh, And it's doing that, you know, like most of my docs through people. Um, So we have kind of a core ensemble of characters from very key parts of that world uh that all come together to tell one story and uh so it was It was made all through covid which was very challenging um because i'm usually oh, in, in the trenches with my subjects all over the place and it was all remote shooting i was literally on a monitor in you know from taiwan to to here um nice. but uh but i'm really grateful for the folks that we got we got a very vulnerable uh open uh, uh participation from the subjects. So uh, yeah, we had a great, a great premiere. I was really happy with it. Um, You know, I didn't, I didn't set out to make something dark. I think at times it does play like a horror film, which wasn't exactly, (laughs) exactly my intention. Um, But it's not, you know, super anti-tech. None of my tech docs are really super anti-tech. I really think there's a lot there that's helpful. It's just, um, we're in a very critical juncture and it was kind of an opportunity for me to dive in to the degree that I could into what was going on uh politically and sort of in the world at th- at this time you know through end tr- of trump into right. covid and this very critical period we're in now where um things are so out of balance and uh, it's so important what information people get and how they get it and that was kind of a driver for why i stopped and did it that's great that's
2: this is not the first movie you've made about sort of the implications of tech and and you know about sort of people who are thinking deeply about this stuff and trying to understand it. And I mean, why? what is it? Why do you think this is sort of consistently fascinating to you? Um,
1: I mean, a, it's an area I've been in since the 80s. So it's an area of interest to me. And I know people in it from like the, the people who funded Google and, and Facebook at the beginning to the black hat hackers and outsiders and radicals and the cypherpunks. It's kind of a landscape I've known a very wide swath of significant people in. Um so I have access uh in that way, and I also have an understanding as a layman um, of what's going on in an arena that I think is wildly misunderstood and uh and often either um uh, hyper evangelized uh or um or um, demonized. It's, it's so it's so black and white and like anything else, the truth is not at all black and white. It's sort of like what's going on with crypto right now. Where it's 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 yes, most of what's going on in crypto is is horrible. And uh, but there there are things about what's going on in that space that are fundamental fundamental to our lives today, which people really don't like having to admit. Um, but it's true. So um, I really, uh, as a documentary filmmaker, period, I like getting into the grays of these things. Sort of like I said about M. You know. Um, oftentimes you can watch a doc and go, oh, well, is it siding with crypto? It's like, no, no, it isn't necessarily. If you actually pay attention, um, there's nuance there and it's, and it's almost, it's internally contradictory. And, uh, I like stories that are paradoxical. It's why I like making Zappa. Zappa was a, an inherently self-contradictory artist. Um, and I think you get to kind of the essence of, of what human beings are. When you strip away the (laughs) the sort of biased black and white, you know, hero or villain shit, right? Um, and that's what YouTube effect kind of is. It's sort of like, you know, you may look at it and go, Oh God, it's so pro YouTube, or you may look at it and go, Oh God, this is such a condemnation of all technology. Um, it's kind of both and neither, really.
0: I love it. I can't wait to see it, man. And we should also mention, you know, you mentioned Zappa. Mike and I are both huge fans of that movie. Uh thank you. If you guys are listening and you haven't seen it, you should, uh, you can rent it or buy it at all of the usual digital outlets, but it's also streaming on Hulu and through Canopy. If you've got a a membership through that. Yes, The blessed Uh, Canopy who
1: I love. Yes. Uh, and Alex, people can follow you on Twitter at winter, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They gave me, they, they blessed, they handed me that for some reason though. If you think about it being a season, isn't necessarily the, (laughs) the gold mine that you think it would be. Um, but uh, yeah, winter on in on that and uh, on a couple other places, I think. All right, man. Th- seriously, thank you so much for doing this, man. We really do appreciate it. it was a lot. Uh, of- always great to chat with you. Always, always, anytime. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, and thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason, and thank you
0: for listening. When I was seventeen.
1: When I was seventeen